We're back in Romans, taking a couple weeks off, kind of had a missionary last week, and we're back in Romans chapter 9, and I just want to read for us the portion of scripture we're looking at this morning, and uh, so we understand where we're at and where we're going, and if you could follow along in beginning in verse um, 19 of Romans chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not only from Jew, uh, from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles as indeed he says in Hosea Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Last uh, two weeks, a couple weeks ago, we looked at um, the doctrine of election. And uh, then we moved on and we looked to the doctrine of reprobation. And a lot of you said, I never even heard of the doctrine of reprobation, let let alone hear a sermon on it. And uh, that doesn't surprise me. A lot of people don't like to talk about it. It's a hard doctrine. But just so you know what we were talking about, the doctrine of election, and you can get that message because we went in depth, and this is just going to kind of be a review of that message, and we'll continue because we weren't able to finish it. The doctrine of election basically is the act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And we looked at all the different verses that had to do with the doctrine of election. It's a very difficult doctrine to stomach. It's hard to understand, but it's what the Bible teaches, and we want to be true to God's word. And Isaiah tells us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. Uh, My ways declares the Lord, for as the heavens are as high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And even in Romans chapter 11, Paul tells us, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So when you come to the doctrine of election, it's a, it's a difficult doctrine. But it's clearly taught in Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, tells us that the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possessions out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. God is in the business of choosing folks. Even in Ephesians, 
It tells us in chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And also in Colossians, it tells us that we have been chosen by God. And whenever it's referring to believers in the New Testament, it's always referring to them as the elect of God. And you can't find it anywhere clearer than John fifteen sixteen, where Jesus simply said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I what? Chose you. All right. And, and so we saw that. And, you know, it's, it's difficult, but we are willing to submit ourselves to the teaching of, the God, the, of God's word and the truth here um, rather than try to recreate God in a more logical thought pattern maybe that we would be more comfortable with. Uh, and that's what people try to do today with the doctrine of election. Well, the other side of the doctrine of election we learned is the doctrine of reprobation. And the doctrine of reprobation is basically the decision of God to pass over those who will not be saved and to punish them for their sins. And we talked about the, the, uh, the, the moral will of God and the decreed will of God. And that's all in that message a couple, couple weeks ago. But the doctrine of, of reprobation is one of the doctrines that people just don't even want to talk about. Um, and we see it here even in Romans where he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. When did that happen? Well, it was before they were ever even born. Okay, God didn't look down through the corridors of time and look at what they were going to do and then base his reaction upon them. That's not a God who is sovereign. That's a God who is reactionary to our thoughts and our deeds and what we decide to do. The Bible doesn't teach that. As a matter of fact, in verse... uh, Uh, 17 there and 18 we saw he says therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden and so a lot of people look at that as kind of a monstrous doctrine and they picture God up in heaven just going willy-nilly you know okay you're going to heaven you're going to hell you're going to heaven that's not how it happens you know when you stop and think about it we are all going to hell we are all on our way fast track to a place of utter eternal torment and damnation and rightfully so because the bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god so we're all on the way to hell the doctrine of election says that god chooses some of those people on the way to hell out and he saves them and he does that in and of his own free will his choice his power he's the sovereign of the universe not us If he didn't do that, as we we sang this morning, if he didn't choose us, we would never come to him. We wouldn't have figured it out. We wouldn't have sat down one day and said, you know, this Christianity thing looks like a pretty good deal. I think I'll buy into it now. It's not going to happen. Because the Bible says the natural man, what, doesn't get, does not understand the things of God. They just can't compute. You know, I remember one time... It was, it was right after, I think, Sam and Panita were married, and we were at their house, and she was kind of new to our church and everything, and I was asking her what she did, and she said, oh, you know, she had a degree in, a doctorate degree in, in uh, some biological whatever, I don't know what, engineering or something. 
And I said, wow, that sounds kind of, he goes, and I remember on this coffee table or a bookshelf or something was her, like her thesis that she had to write for this doctorate degree that she got. And I remember going, oh, let me see. And I opened it up and it was like, what is this stuff? I mean, I, I couldn't even, I, I couldn't even recognize the equation, nothing. I mean, there was just nothing there for me. It was just a bunch of numbers and equal signs and, you know, graders. It was crazy. And yet, if I showed it to her, it would probably make perfect sense. You know, and that's the way it is a lot of times when the natural man approaches the word of God. They can't get it. They don't see it. And God has to supernaturally take the blinders off and open their eyes. That's the the doctrine of election. Well, the, the doctrine of reprobation says that all those people who are going to hell, God chooses some out, that's election, but he also chooses to pass over the others. In other words, not everybody is saved, beloved. I mean, that's the tragic end of of life, but not everybody gets to go to heaven. And we don't get to go to heaven based on who we are or what we do or, you know, how spiritual we are. The only reason we get to go to heaven is by God's grace. And we looked at various scriptures. Um, I think there's a couple in there. Go to the next slide there. There's a couple... uh, uh, scriptures, find the scriptures. Uh, in John tw- chapter 12, it says 39 to 40, therefore they could not believe. Okay? It says, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And over and over again, we saw in Jude the end there, we saw certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you, Jude's, Jude writes. And then basically he, he says there at the end that, you know what, this is, these, are, these are people who are um, destined for judgment. They're destined for judgment. And we talked about two distinctions um, when we talked about these two, these two doctrines, because it was very important to understand that God does not determine the destinies of individuals in exactly the same way. He doesn't determine who are going to be elect the same way he determines who will be reprobate. If it wasn't for God saving us, we would never be saved. He has to inject himself into our lives. He has to make us a new person in Christ. He has to elect us. He has to save us. We're not going to be saved on our own. And on the other side of that, God doesn't have to do anything for those who are going to hell. They're already going to hell. He doesn't make them go to hell. He makes people go to heaven. Because he elects them, but everybody's going to hell. So the doctrine of reprobation basically says, you know what? God passes over some. Why he does that, I don't know. I mean, why does God save you and not your neighbor? Who knows? Why does God save you and not your brother or your sister and your own family? I don't know. That's up to God. And we talked about uh, quite a bit about, about that whole thing. And Wayne Grudem 
says this, when we understand election as God's sovereign choice of some persons to be saved, there is necessarily another aspect of that choice, namely God's sovereign decision to pass over others and not save them. This decision of God in eternity past is called reprobation. Reprobation is a sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them. He's not gleeful as he does this and to punish them for their sins and therefore manifest his justice and his glory. So this text we're looking at talks about the sovereign God and how he has the right to deal with sinful creatures, which we all are, in such a way as to display his glory both in judgment and in mercy. And he sets it up in verse 19, if God has mercy on whom he he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And the first point we looked at two weeks ago was the sovereign God has all the rights to deal with sinful creatures as he chooses. We don't have any rights. You know, we, we, we live in a society where everybody thinks they got rights. Well, we really don't. I mean, maybe in society we do. But when it comes to God, we don't. Uh, Paul really allowed the previous question there where he says there is no injustice with God, is there? He kind of posed that question. And he answers it, may it never be. In other words, don't ever think that God somehow is unjust or unfair or doing something that could be possibly thought of as sinful because that's not who God is. That's not the nature of the God that saved us. That's not the nature of the God that we serve. And when it comes to this text here, he brings up that question in verse 19. He says, um, Will you say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? What's he saying? He's saying, well, look, this looks like a fix. This looks like God fixed this whole thing before we were ever even born. So why is it my fault that I'm a sinner? If God's so sovereign, right? I mean, that's what people started asking. And what he says, he doesn't answer the question. He just says, you know what? You've crossed the line. (laughs) You've crossed the line. You're out of bounds. He throws the flag. It says, foul. You can't ask that question. You just need to humble your heart before the almighty sovereign God of the universe. Sometimes we use God as, a, as an excuse for our own sin. You, know, you hear people dealing with sin and sometimes in counseling they'll say things like, you know, I don't know why I was born this way. Why would God... B- Allow me to be born this way with this proclivity to this kind of a sin or that kind of a sin. And so what are they doing? They're pointing their finger at God. And they're saying, wait a minute, this is is your fault, God. I remember reading about a a couple, middle-aged couple, and the wife, during their whole marriage, had just been unfaithful. Time after time after time. Just totally unfaithful. And one day, she found out her husband had cheated on her. She was incensed. She was just livid. She didn't know what to do. It says that she went to the local pastor and sat in his office. How could he do this to me? 
And there was a sense of self-righteousness all of a sudden, even though she had totally destroyed their marriage years ago. But the idea that he would cheat on her just sent her through the rafters. And when the pastor asked her, well, you know, began to learn a little more. And she said, well, I've had my situations too. And what she did, she pointed her finger back at him. But you know what? He made me do it. Nobody makes you do anything. When you sin, trust me, you're, you're the one who's sinning. You're the one who's saying, sinning. You can't say, oh, it's God's fault. You can't say, oh, you know, well, you don't understand how I was raised, my mom. And don't go there. Just take personal responsibility for your sin. It's a lot easier to get over the, the, the hump that way. <laughs> you know, when you start making excuses for your own sin, uh, it, it, doesn't, it makes things worse. It just does. Once in a while, my grandkids would tell a, a fib. It's a lie is what it is. But, you know, once you're grandkids, you call it a fib. But it's a lie. <laughs> and they've been known to tell some pretty doozies. And I remember talking to one of them one time saying, you know, why did you do this? This was the stupidest lie you could have ever. I mean, you know, it's very clear what happened here. Why would you lie about it? And I remember them telling me very heartfelt in tears. I don't know. I don't know. I just did it. I wasn't thinking. You know. Take personal responsibility for your sin. It's not your parents' fault. I mean, you know, hey, some people are raised in a wonderful home. Some people are raised in a horrible home. That's life. And you have to, at some point, say, you know what? I'm not going to allow that life to control the rest of my life. You think that you had enough of it when you were part of it. Why would you drag it in to your everyday life now if you can put it behind you? And in Christ, the Bible says that old things have passed away. Behold what? All things have become new. So there is, there is hope in Christ. But we need to take some personal responsibility. And we also have to realize here, and we talked a little bit about this, that the clay is not perfect clay. The clay is sinful clay in this illustration in Romans. So it's not like the clay was perfect. You know, the clay is tainted by sin. God didn't create us sinful. I mean, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created perfect in every way. They were given a wonderful environment to live in. But what happened? Sin crept in. And as a result of sin... Our whole human race is tainted with sin. And so we saw how God basically has the rights to deal with sinful creatures as he chooses. We don't have the right to go to God and demand things from him. Well, the second thing we're going to look at there in your outline, point number two. The sovereign God deals with sinful creatures in such a way as to display his glory. Look at what it says in verses 22 to 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? So God has a purpose here. God has a plan. Don't ever think that God somehow 
got out of his playbook and said, I don't know what to do now. I lost my playbook. I lost my purpose. I lost my will. Oh my gosh, they're doing this now. What do I do? Our God is not that way. God knows exactly what's going to happen before it even happens. And so even some of the difficult things that come into our life, God has a purpose. And part of that purpose is to display his glory. Look at what it says there in verse, in verse 22. It says he wants to show his wrath and make his power known. And he's endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The, uh, the New American Standard basically interpret that a, a, interpret that a little differently. Um, but in the context, it's really, it's a parallel to verses 17 and 18 when he talks about Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart. Um, verse 22, you could say, but what if God, because he was willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if is not a hypothetical question that may or not be true. It's a rhetorical question. He's asking a question as a statement of fact. It's as if Paul is saying, what is it to you if God holds off on judging sinners so as to make a greater display of his patience, his wrath, and his power? Who are you to think that God can't do that? One commentator, Mu, explains it this way. He says, In the case of both Pharaoh and the vessels of wrath, God withholds his final judgment so that he can more spectacularly display his glory. John Piper puts it this way. In other words, the final and deepest argument Paul gives for why God acts in sovereign freedom is that this way of acting displays most fully the glory of God, including his wrath against sin and his power in judgment, so that the vessels of mercy can know him most completely and worship him with the greatest intensity for all eternity. But when you come to that phrase, they're vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It's almost some people who are probably in the hyper-Calvinist ballpark, they kind of look at this as almost double predestination, like God is, is preparing these vessels for destruction. But that's not what it's saying. The sinner fits himself for destruction by his own sin. Like I said, we were all on our way to hell. God doesn't have to do anything to send us to hell. We're going to hell. And Paul specifically states that God prepares them beforehand for glory when it's vessels of mercy. So you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, okay, well, does God make these people believe this? No. But does God make us who are saved believe that? Yes, he does. He gives us with the Holy Spirit. He gives, gives us with his grace and his mercy. He opens our eyes to the gospel. 
It doesn't mean that God arbitrarily made these men as sinners so that he could demonstrate his wrath. That would be a monstrous God. Every sinner, as we just said, is responsible for their own sin. No one can blame God for making him a sinner. But the point Paul is making here is that, you know what? I want you to understand that God is sovereign, and he's sovereign even over those proud and defiant sinners. They're not holding the cards. God is. They may think they can stand against him, but they're literally like pawns in his hand. He uses them to display his patience. He uses them to display his wrath. He uses them to display his power. And then he righteously judges them for their sin. Wayne Wayne Grudem says this, um, that it's better to refer to God's foreordination of the wicked to judgment as reprobation, not double predestination, because that's not what it is. When you use the word double predestination, like God predestined us to be saved and he predestined others to go to hell, that implies that God carries out both election and damnation in the same way. And we learned two weeks ago, that that's not the way it works. In predestining us to glory, to saving us, God works directly on our hearts through the Holy Spirit to impart new life, saving faith, and all the blessings of salvation. But in reprobation, God does not work immediately on the heart to infuse evil. He doesn't force people to sin so that he can judge their sin. Rather, he works through secondary causes to you might say permit sin so that sinners are justly condemned for their own willful sins. Predestination, or as it's called, also unconditional election. In other words, you're elected for salvation not based on anything. There's no condition. God just chooses. That should be a comfort to us as believers because it really assures us that God will do what he purposes to do in our lives. That he will complete this process of sanctification in spite of many sins. That God has a purpose. He has a plan. That he will complete what he has begun in us, as Paul says in Philippians. It also shows us that we deserve his judgment. We deserve his wrath. And it really takes a magnifying glass to the grace of God that he has exposed in our hearts. Calvin called the doctrine of reprobation dreadful. (laughs) He said it's a dreadful doctrine. But it can also comfort us as believers with the truth that, you know what? No person can upset or thwart what God's sovereign purpose is. You look at Pharaoh who tried to oppose God's will. But God raised him up and patiently endured his sin so that God could make known his wrath and power before he destroyed him. You look at Judas. You look at the Jewish leaders of the New Testament. Pilate. All of those were, they basically sinned by crucifying Jesus Christ. And they were judged for it. But what they did accomplished God's sovereign plan. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but that, that helps me sleep at night. To know that no wicked ruler, false teacher, or persecutor of the church, including the Antichrist himself, by the way, is able to frustrate God's plan. You know, we're on a winning team. That should give us a little spring in our step. When we look at society and we see the wheels coming off the cart, and everybody's so incensed with, oh, the election, the election. The election is going to be exactly what God wants it to be. I think it's either going to be a further judgment on our country for the sins of our country, or it may be a window of opportunity. But that's up to God. That's up to God. We should do our due diligence. We should go to the polls and vote for the best possible candidate that represents biblical values. You're not going to find somebody that that represents exactly. But you can definitely compare and you can say, okay, light, darkness, let's see here. Which one's closer to which? The idea that you think you have to vote for a Christian and a Christian only is crazy. Because maybe God doesn't want a Christian to be the president of the United States. Maybe that's not his will. So what do we do? We just check out and don't do our civil duty? That's kind of crazy. I don't think God would want us to do that. So... We see here that God displays his glory by his patience, his wrath, his power when he judges sinners who are prepared for destruction. The other thing he does here, he displays his glory by making known the riches of his mercy on vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand. Look at verse 23. It says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. It's almost like, you know, if you ever go to a jewelry store and they take the diamond out, and what do they, what do they put the diamond on? Black. Why? Because, boy, that diamond just pops when it's on that black felt. You know, uh, if they just put it on a white piece of paper, you'd go, oh, that's a nice stone. But, boy, you see it on a black felt, man, it's just that, that diamond just jumps out and says, buy me. They know that. And it's kind of like what he's doing is he's putting on display God's unmerited grace because it shines so much more brilliantly against the terrible backdrop of human sin. When you stop and you look at how God loved you, how God loved me, how God saved us, and then we look at ourselves and we, we know how sinful we are, how miserable we are. That God would save a wretch like me. You know? And to think that, well, once you're saved, that that all changes. Positionally, it does, right? When you get saved positionally before God, you're a holy, you're a chosen people, you're set aside, you're set apart. But you know what? Practically, you still deal with sin. I still deal with sin. We're not perfect. There's some that believe, as we talked about on Wednesday night in our Bible study, some people believe once you get saved, then you attain holiness. And you don't even have to think about sin because it doesn't even affect you anymore. That's not a biblical doctrine. Even the Apostle Paul, as we saw earlier in Romans, said, man, why am I doing the things I shouldn't be doing? And why aren't I doing the things that I want to do? 
man, a sin that dwells in me, in this flesh of mine. You know, we won't be totally sanctified until we are in our glorified state before our Savior in heaven. Until then, we still got to deal with sin. But here it tells us that God prepared beforehand those vessels of mercy. The vessels of destruction didn't really need any preparation. They were already destroyed. They were already going to hell. But God had to choose. He had to set apart those whom would be saved for his glory. And that's a humbling statement for believers. You know, sometimes I think us in the church as believers, we get a little haughty. We get a little self-righteous. We think a little bit more of ourselves than maybe we ought and when we see people outside the church, you know, we look at them and, oh, you know, they're not like me. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I even pray before my meals. That pagan person over there probably doesn't do that, I'm sure. I see their car in the driveway every Sunday. Never leaves. You know, and we, we begin to grow hard and we, begrin, we begin to grow callous toward those who are lost. And we'll forget that Paul tells us in Titus and in other areas of Scripture that, you know what? You better be careful because you were one of those. You walked that same way. You were just as ignorant as they were concerning spiritual things. Who do you think you are to stand on your high horse when really you don't have anything to stand on? Because there's nothing within you that that God saved you. God saved you because of his grace. He saved you because of his mercy. Have you ever thought what a blessing it it is to have been born in this country? I mean, just stop and think about that. I mean, you could have been born in Iraq. You could have been born in Syria. You could have been born in in a country that is, is totally against the things of Christ and God. And your faith would have meant maybe your head on a chopping block. But no, you were born in a, in a country here in America where you have the freedom of expression of religion. And yeah, it's grown a little tighter. <laughs> you know, I don't know how long that's going to be that way. But you know what? Thank God I was born here. As many problems as this country has, it's still the greatest country on earth. With all its sin and all everything else that's got going on. I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. And when we think of God saving us and we begin to realize that, you know what? There is so much grace that he has extended to us. The fact that we can meet here in a church and we can open up our own personal copy of God's word and we can fellowship together and we can sing songs without fear of judgment, somebody coming in with guns ready to execute us. I mean, yeah, we live in a society where that could happen. But it's not the norm. We deserve God's judgment because of our sin. But God showed us mercy, it says. The riches of God's mercy and his grace are available to everyone right now. And God's ultimate purpose, really, is not just to display his glory... I mean, that's mind-boggling enough, but when you stop and think about it, the riches of his glory, it says, upon vessels of mercy. 
Stop and ask yourself, have you received the mercy of God? Have you received his son, Jesus Christ? Have you believed in him? See, if you can answer in the affirmative, if you can say, yes, that's something I've done, then you know what? It's because God has opened your eyes. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that God has opened your eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You've begun to understand, as Ephesians 3.8 says, the unfathomable riches of Christ. This is something that is available to all of us. Ephesians 2.7 says, In the ages to come, God will show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The point of that word, riches, Pastor John Piper says this, is to awaken in us a sense that our inheritance in God is infinitely greater than the greatest riches here on earth. And then he says this, Oh, how foolish we are to lay up treasures on earth when the glory of God is our portion. See, when you stop and you think about who we're going to blame or not blame for things on this earth, you have to stop and you have to ask the question, well, who, who is to blame? There's kind of different contrasts here. James Boyce writes it out this way. He says there's three humbling contrasts. When you look at the answer to verse 20 and the illustration there in verse 21, it provides contrasts that are intended to put the question in its proper perspective. And it's intended to put ourselves in our proper place. The first contrast here is man and God. The first contrast is more apparent in the Greek than in the English. For the verse begins with the words, O man, and ends with the words, what? The God. Yet is it apparent enough in the English, you and I are mere men, and we're set over against the God who made not only us, but all things. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's ludicrous for creatures as small as we are and ignorant as we are and impotent as we are to think that somehow we have priority over God and somehow we can question his actions. We may not understand what God is doing. You may not understand what God is doing in your own life. But once again, he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. The second contrast here quickly is not only between man and God, but between what is formed and who formed it. Boyce says, the contrast between man and God, the first, stresses the insignificance of one and the greatness of the other. The second contrast, listen to this, brings in another matter, namely that we are mere creatures. God is the creator. And therefore, everything we are and have comes from him, including even our ability to ask questions. Robert Haldane says this, Any wisdom the creature possesses must have been received from the creator. And if the creator has the power of forming rational beings, must he not himself be infinite in wisdom? 
And does it not insult the creator to pretend to find imperfection in his proceedings? This, the, the reason and discernment between right and wrong, which he, man, possesses, is the gift of God. It is then, it must then be the greatest abuse of these faculties to employ them to question the conduct of him who gave these faculties to him. See, Paul is stressing here, beloved, that we don't have the right to speak for God or to speak over God because we're sinful creatures. And then the third contrast here, he talks about the clay and the potter. In each of these categories, they basically say the same thing, Boyce says, but also each adds a new element. And the new element here is the authority of the Old Testament since the illustration of the pottery and the clay is drawn from the Old Testament and shows that the principle involved is a point of revelation. There are four main passages in which the potter and the clay is found in the Old Testament. Isaiah 29, 16. Uh, it says, uh, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? Or in Isaiah 45, it says, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Or in Isaiah 64, verse 8, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the, all the work of your hands. And the best one is in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. And it talks about Jeremiah going down to the potter's house. And he says, There, I'll give you a message. So he went to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot... He was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of a potter, so are you in my hand. O house of Israel, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed... And if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Kind of prophetic for our own country, isn't it? Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. When you stop and think of God's gracious hand and his patience, and you look at those three contrasts, you really see how God has been gracious to our own country. And even on a, on a more minute level, gracious to us as individuals. How many times did you hear the gospel before you got saved? Maybe it was the first time, but I doubt it. 
Usually it takes three, four, five times. Somebody's witnessing to you. Think of the patience of God in that. God is patient. Don't ever forget that he desires all to come to the Savior. Are all going to come? No. But see, when we leave this, this building, we have to understand that we are literally going out into a mission field. I want to get a sign back there above the doors that says, you are now entering the mission field. By the way, side note, we put some track racks up there, and, and Dave Bullen's going to be stocking them full of tracks. So if you want to take some of those tracks, that's fine. You can, if you want to help out with the cost of those, there's a little box back there. You can put some money in there, but they're free. They're, they're, they're for you to take and distribute. Don't take them and put them on your bookshelf. Okay, make sure you give them out because that's, that's what they're for. But we live in a lost and dying world, beloved, and God has left us here with a message of hope and forgiveness that can literally transform somebody's life. And we just need to be reminded of that day in and day out because as believers, sometimes we grow complacent, we grow skeptical, and we need to be reminded that God is still at work and he desires us to be part of that work in sharing our faith. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to work through Romans next week, that you would continue to give us wisdom. Lord, we ask that you would uh, remind us that you are in control, that you are sovereign. And Lord, that for us who are saved, it's by your grace. There's nothing in and of ourselves that we deserve salvation. And Lord, we understand that if we're truly saved. And Father, for maybe those here this morning who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That they would understand their need of a Savior. That there's really nowhere else to go. There's only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. He's the one that went to the cross. He's the one that paid the due penalty of our sin. An individual who was sinless in every way was treated as if he had committed all the sins of all the people who would ever believe in him for salvation. And he did that because he loves us. He cares for us. And as we leave this building today, help us to be reminded to reach out and to witness and to share our faith, our testimony with those around us, that they too may come to a proper understanding of the glorious gospel of Christ. Father, we thank you and we pray that you bless our time of fellowship over in the building afterwards as well. Bless the food of our bodies. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.